Today we are starting um, in this new year a seven-week look at what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to be giving you really practical applications each and every week on how to take a step of faith, or if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, what the pieces are the church has given in order for us to grow in that relationship with Jesus. We're calling this series Learning to Follow Jesus, and there are three things we're going to teach and walk through together. Following Jesus in his story, we know this by scripture, by studying the Bible, following Jesus in his presence through prayer, silence, and solitude, and then following Jesus in his character by how we live our life. As the Apostle Paul says, that our worship is what we do with our bodies, our minds, our time, and energy, and the resources God has gifted us with. Today, we're going to be doing part one of two parts of looking at Scripture. What does it mean to dive into the story that God has given us? Today, we'll talk about the value of moving into that story, and next week, we're going to talk about why that story is trustworthy, why we can lean on it, why we can build our life around the story God has given to us. I want to begin by talking a little bit about the stories that make us who we are. I was thinking about 2020, before the pandemic happened, my family was already going through the process of retiring out of a business my family has done for about 60 years, uh, an auto body shop and an engine rebuilding facility in Hamilton. And I was sitting underneath a metal rack for about four hours with my sister disassembling giant metal shelving that used to hold parts. And it was really dusty and I was working with a wrench and helping my sister kind of know how to use it and using the drills, swapping out batteries, doing all of this. And it hit me as we were disassembling these shelves that almost two decades earlier, my grandfather and I had built those shelves. And so now with my sister, I'm disassembling things with my grandfather we had built. And we still own the property and can visit it as we rent it out. But seeing that season of my family come to a close reminded me how significant even just this building is to the story of who I am. Thinking back to my grandfather worked there, my father worked there, my aunt worked there, my mother worked there. I worked there as a child, helping paint and learning to work on cars. I know the story that's in that place, the story of my grandfather working on wood panel station wagons when they were still actually made of wood and asbestos, working there in the 50s and the 60s. Thinking about what they would say about my grandfather, that he would take a vehicle apart, he would put it back together, and he'd have a pile of all these other parts, wires and bolts, and he would say, the car never really needed those to begin with. And they'd be like, well, I, th I think it probably did. Even today, when the, I recognize the smell of a combination of oil, burning ozone, and stale coffee immediately brings me back to being 12 years old again and walking around a building far too dangerous for me to be wandering around, but wandering around it nonetheless. I worked as a teen there, painting the building. I remember being 12 years old and my dad paid me that summer. My job was to paint the outside of the building. And he still reminds me that he thinks at that time I spent more time in the office reading the daily, uh, the TV guide and car magazines than actually painting. He's like, you always seem to be on break. And I was like, I was 12 trying to paint this giant building in the city of Trenton. I, this day, know more about cars than the average person, but if you really know a lot about cars, I cannot maintain a conversation with you. And the story of that building 
being three generations who worked there, supported each other, the blue-collar ethic, the family-run business, even the idea of Chambersburg and Trenton and Hamilton, a lot of those things are ingrained in who I am. And if you know me long enough, that's an important part of getting to know me, is where my family has come from, what has built us, knowing those ethics and ideas, and who I am. It influences how I view family, how I view work, how I view life in general. We all have stories that define us, stories that make us who we are at this point in our life. Maybe it is your story of childhood, or maybe for you it's the significance of your 20s and 30s, figuring out who you are and finding that idea of family and friends and career and driving. Maybe it even is the story of your life later in life, being faithful to family, to those closest to you as the bodies declined. We all have stories that define us. Many of us keep building them throughout our life. These stories remind us and ground us back into who we are, who I am, how I view the world, how I view family, or how I view friendships, how I view work ethic. They give us our value and our self-worth. As followers of Jesus, there is a story that has defined and coalesced the followers of Jesus, the community of faith, for 2,000 years. The story of God speaking life into this world, the story of humanity's struggle to maintain that relationship, to fall into sin and brokenness, God entering into our world to restore us back through sacrificial love, and the promise that in eternity all will be well through him. This story, more or less, has told Christians for 2,000 years who we are and has kept us together. You can feel it in these last few years, and we talk about this a lot here in our church community, that there has been an erosion of community identity in followers of Jesus in the Western world, in our world, in New Jersey, a breaking apart of community. And I meet with leadership coaches, I have other pastors that help me and give me guidance, and we were talking about vision and mission and what those mean. He was kind of teaching me, mission is what your church has always been about, what drives you, that's our leading people to Jesus. He was like, your vision is how you're going to achieve that this year, what, the, what that's going to look like, what your goal is. And he was like, but there's another piece above all of that that we've always assumed. He's like, that piece is worldview. And in the Christian faith, we've largely held to the same worldview, and that's held us together, it's guided us, and so we just build that mission and vision. He's like, in the last few years, the tension we feel is that that agreement over worldview has started to erode and to slip. And so we don't even realize that we're now viewing the world differently from each other inside of the church. We no longer view the world maybe as good but fallen, we view it entirely as broken. We don't view it as systems that work against people that we're praying to work against. We view it as individualism. We don't view Jesus as God himself with authority over our lives. We view him as friend who helps guide and advise. A large portion of this, I believe, is due to an erosion and a deprioritization of how we talk about Scripture how we engage with it in our personal life, how we engage with it in community, and even the art of wrestling with it together. 
of saying, I disagree with how you're interpreting this. I disagree with your reading of this. It's a really big, really old, really complex book, but that we are agreeing together that the story shared in these pages is a worldview that unites us and aligns us. We believe at Pennington AG, we say this a lot, hopefully it's drilled into your head and beginning to be annoying, but that the Bible is a unified story, both divine and human, that leads to Jesus. The Bible is one story over 66 books, written over 1,500 years, written by men and women, guided by the Holy Spirit with divine authority, and that the whole story leads to Jesus Christ. He's at the center of it, our need for him, his arrival, and the outplaying consequences of his life, death, and resurrection. Into that, I want to touch base on just five ways that we engage with Scripture that I think are less than honoring of the full breadth of the story. And I want you to think a little bit about where you may or we may be doing this ourselves when we read Scripture, and then I want to offer a better alternative. First one is the inkblot reading. We read scripture and we read it like a Rorschach test. I see in scripture what I want scripture to say. And I'm gonna keep turning through scripture until I find the right passage that's agreeing with the way I want it to be. My experience, my culture, my family, my life view is going to influence how I'm reading this text. And I'm constantly trying to think, how is this applying to the way I see the world? Where can I have this passage in Psalms or this writing from Paul in Romans impact the way I already view the world? I see the Bible as I want to see it. Second is bite-sized rules. I grab the Bible as just, you know, little rules for guiding my life, little rules and advice to structure it. I grab parts that are about right and wrong, and the Bible tells me what's right, what's wrong how to be a good person, and who is a bad person, and how I should interact with that bad person. That there are 613 rules as I read through the Bible, and I'm trying to grab them to help guide my life. This is how you end up with a family or a community like the community in Kevin Bacon's Footloose, by reading the Bible this way, and then you eliminate all dancing from the world, and then this good-looking guy has to teach you about David dancing before the Lord. Third one, bite-sized blessings. This is often understood by if our only engagement with Scripture is reading those little devotional handouts or a little verse that's sent to us as an encouragement, that the Bible is a daily way of just how I get through the world how I get through the overwhelming grief or anxiety of the world. The Bible are just little encouragements to get me through it. Best example of this is anything burned onto a piece of wood in Hobby Lobby. This is the idea, just encouraging me through. One little, you got this baby, one little God's believing in you. And I grab the Bible desperate for it to encourage me in some way, shape, or form. And then I open it and I'm like, oh, it's Leviticus. Oh, Psalm is condemning me. I'm reading Jeremiah. No, it's not what I want. Or to find teachers. I want to read the Bible in order to inspire me, for someone in Scripture to give me a life hack, someone in Scripture to guide me to be a better person, a more effective person. I'm looking for a good teacher. I really like Paul, so I'm reading all of Paul's stuff. I really like the way Luke writes in the Gospels and Acts, so I'm reading under Luke. I study Luke. The problem is, 
if we do this outside of the full story of Scripture, is how we end up holding ideas that can be oppressive, that can be hurtful, that can be cruel. I can't read Paul's teachings on Romans without a full understanding of what God was doing in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Romans doesn't make any sense without it. I can't read Hebrews and sit under that teaching without understanding Levitical law and what Moses was teaching in Deuteronomy. I can't. I can't read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount without understanding the struggle to live righteously in the Old Testament. It is one full story inspiring us. And as we pick one view of theology or one part of Scripture that we enjoy most or look for someone to teach us, we miss the full story of what God is teaching. And lastly, we can read Scripture as a puzzle to solve, something to figure out, theology to master. And if I sit under one systematic theology, I can get it. I got it. I got all of Scripture. The person who reads really strange passages of Scripture and feels like they absolutely have to be able to understand this, place it into a box of how all of Scripture works and explain it. Sometimes these can be, and I apologize to say, some of the most annoying Christians you might be around when you say, I'm really struggling with this. And like, oh yes, I used to struggle with that until I understood. And then they explain to you their systematic of how it all goes to work. You just have to have the right system, Calvin's system or Wesley's system or this YouTube Bible teacher's system of how it all works. And now I have it all figured out and there's no need to challenge myself. I got it. These are all shortcuts, shortcuts to engage with Scripture because Scripture is big, Scripture is old, Scripture is complicated, and it is attempting to tackle the deepest, widest, and longest questions of what it means to be human. Why are we here? Why does my life matter at all? Do I have value? When a loved one I care about deeply closes their eyes on this earth and dies, what happens? When there is injustice in this world that seems to never go away and some always are without and some are always with, what happens and why does that unfairness happen in this world? Will there ever be justice for those who have suffered and those who have abused? Scripture is a historic, spiritual story explaining those questions to us. And it calls us to engage with the story as followers of Jesus, as fellow human beings. Rather than grab bites or try to understand, it is a story to enter for us. Back to the main point. Scripture and its study is something that is helpful to memorize, to internalize, to remind ourselves often. And to use the language again, it is a unified story, human and divine, that leads to Jesus. Let's look at a passage where Jesus is practicing this idea and teaching us this. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. It is in the passage of Luke, Jesus' first public teaching and declaration of what he's doing and what he is about and what God has called him to. It is also Jesus using the regular public reading of Scripture 
in order to do that and teach that. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, when Jesus came to the village, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled the scroll back up, he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. All eyes on the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. If you continue to read the rest of the passage, it goes bonkers. They do not respond well to this. They're emotional. They respond out of anger. But in this passage, we see a unified story. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, who is referring back to Levitical teachings on the year of Jubilee and the role of a proclaimed king from the monarch of Israel. These kings we see try to live up to, but unable to live up to the standard of being king, of being savior of God's people. And then there is a story of longing for a Messiah to come and save God's people from themselves, from the brokenness of the world. This story that Isaiah begins to point us to a coming Messiah that Jesus then sits there and declares, I am he. We see one passage in Luke referring back to multiple passages in the Old Testament that are telling one unified story of God's longing for salvation. We see divine and human impact. Jesus is quoting Isaiah and he speaks in Isaiah's language and words. Isaiah speaks differently than Jeremiah speaks, who speaks differently than Ezekiel speaks. Ezekiel speaks with crazy illustrations and metaphors and things flying in the sky and bones coming back up. Jeremiah speaks from his heart and is often little whiny and complainy and emotional. Isaiah speaks with this confidence of a God who is going to come and save his people. The biblical authors have human voices and human context to which they speak, but are guided to tell a unified story by his spirit. And then what's most obvious in this passage that leads to Jesus a unified story, human and divine, that leads to Jesus. The culmination of this passage in Luke is a revelation of a Messiah to come who is standing there in their presence in Christ Jesus. It's referencing the height of Israel, the law of Israel, their fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus basically stands up, holds the scroll of Isaiah, and says, all of this is about me. And all of this is about to come to fruition through what I will do, speak, teach, die, and resurrect in your presence. This is why they responded so over the top. The declaration is earth-shatteringly significant. The hope you've been longing for is here in me. Let's look at each of these pieces for ourselves. The Bible as story. What does it mean that the Bible is a story? Not a series of passages we try to memorize, not little devotionals we open up, but a story. 
from Genesis to Revelation, written over about 1,500 years, 66 different books, multiple authors writing in different languages and different cultures and different times, telling one story about God and his created humanity. A story helps take seemingly random experiences and give them context. A story helps take things we can't quite understand that happened to us and show us why that's happening. A story takes our childhood, takes my childhood experience of living with an auto body shop that my family owns, and the story allows me to see working there, family working there through the lens of family, hard work ethic, relationship, community. Story takes the pieces and gives the context. The story of Scripture takes pieces over a thousand years and tells us what God is trying to do and is doing in his people. The story of the Bible can be told in five parts. I'll walk through them very quickly. The first part, there's a whole creation. God made this place on purpose with great care because he cares about his creation, because he is communal and relational. So he breathed life into this world and it was good and his plan for it was good and to be in relationship with it. He did it in six days and on the seventh he rested and he rested with his creation. It is whole and we are made to be whole creation. It is then broken. Whole creation becomes broken creation. You can call it fallen creation. It is made to be good, but it is also now fallen. Human beings choose sin. The world is broken. We suffer. We die. We long. We hurt. But we have in us this same created desire to be whole. There is then decay in the brokenness. All things broken continue to decline. If you've ever traveled to Europe and seen what remains of great civilizations of Rome and Greece, and you've seen it decaying and falling and breaking. Once sin entered into the world, God's good creation is not just broken, but continuing to break further. As you read the Old Testament, you may get frustrated. You may get disappointed. You see absolute insanity at moments of reading the Old Testament. Brother is fighting brother. There's death, destruction, lies, cheating. There's incest. There's murder. There's genocides. All of these things are breaking down as what is broken continues to decay. And out of that decay comes a longing for restoration, a longing that all humanity has felt. Is this all that there is? Is there more than just this brokenness? Is there more than just this hurt and insecurity? And from that decay comes the offering of wholeness in Jesus. We see at the heart of Scripture the gospel stories of Jesus Christ living as a whole human being. Some theologians use the term humanity 2.0. He comes in and he shows us what we are called to be, what being a whole person looks like when we are not insecure of our value, when we are not fighting and jockeying for power. What it looks like to be a human like that is the story of Jesus who gives lovingly and selflessly and generously with great power to restore. We see him healing. We see him overcoming even natural disasters in storms and deserts and famines. He restores it all back to the wholeness. 
And then through his death and resurrection, he offers us the chance to be whole through putting on his calling, his identity, his power, and his presence. So that in the end of scripture, there will be whole creation again. That we are now his agents of bringing wholeness into this world. By his spirit that lives among us, we are agents of wholeness through love, generosity, care, that one day he would return and he will remove all brokenness from this world and restore us back to whole creation. This is the story of scripture in five acts. Whole creation, creation broken, that brokenness decaying and longing for restoration, that restoration offered in the wholeness of Jesus who will one day return and restore wholeness to all heaven and earth. This is not a controversial view. This is the orthodox agreed upon interpretation of scripture for about the last 1800 years. This is the saving grace of my adulthood of reading scripture. I grew up, and maybe some of you have as well, in Sunday school classes where I was taught just individual stories and that the Old Testament were stories of great men and women who did great things but then had fatal flaws of their own. And what I was often taught was model after these great men and women, but just don't do the, fa the failed thing they did. So be like Samson, but just don't let anybody cut your hair off. You know, be like Moses, but don't hit the rock twice. You know, be like Joshua, but don't get down embroiled into war. Be like David, but don't sleep with someone else's wife. That one seemed the most obvious. <laughs> but in it creates this tension for us where we say, if they couldn't do it, why are you expecting me to be able to do it? And they did these fantastical things we're still talking about 2,000 years later. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could lead these people through a desert and then also not fail in the way that Moses failed. And they say, well, you have the Holy Spirit in you, so you're going to be able to do it. And I say, I don't feel like that. Versus saying, this is a story of humanity's inability to save themselves, but God's desire and plan to love and care for them. And so he made them to be cared for. When they couldn't do it themselves, he came and did it for them in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that one day he would return and heal us all and restore us all through his death and resurrection. Jesus gives us this encouragement in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. He says, the story that we enter into. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and flood come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. It is one story that leads us to Jesus, which leads us to the second part that the Bible is written by God and humans. 
written by humanity, also written by God, working together. Human beings brought their personalities into it, but God inspired the story. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 1 through 3, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So the Bible is a story. The story is written by humans and God together. That passage in Ephesus, Paul does a version of that a dozen times. That little intro talking about who he is, that God has called him. He does this in Colossians. He does it in Corinthians. does it in Romans. does it in Ephesians. does it in, in Thessalonians. It's a pattern of his. And for me, reading Paul's letters, I often would read that and say to myself, ah, boy, he's really, Paul's really confident. And it often would actually put me off on reading Paul's letters. I was like, he's kind of arrogant. He's starting all of his letters with these boastful brags about who he is. And for me, as someone also called into ministry, it oftentimes made me feel insecure of, I'm not that confident. I don't feel that way that Paul feels. This guy is this way and he writes a third of the New Testament. I'm not that kind of person. Until I began to study scripture, until I read several biographies on Paul, and one of the beautiful things that unlocked the reading of Paul's letters to me was one theologian said, the beginning letters of Paul are not boasting out of pride. We can read them as insecurity that he was a Pharisee who persecuted the church. He wasn't with Jesus when Jesus was alive. He was grafted in after his death. Jesus had to kind of come last minute and bring him back in. And many of the other Christians that he's writing these letters to may remember him as this man who has killed his brother or sister, who ruled over trials where people were stoned or thrown out of the communities. And so he's writing the beginning of the letters as almost an insecure way of saying, I'm one of you. I'm in this together. you got to believe me. We're, we're working this together. And the moment Paul became a human being to me, it unlocked the letters again to see not only the theology of what God was writing, but the human connection of the people he was writing through, that they're also wrestling with their faith and their life and what God has called them to. They're writing with the culture and the oppression and the pain happening to them. That you can see that in the writings of the prophets. You can see it in the writings of Moses. You can see it in Paul's writings. These are human beings writing from their experience, wrestling with the same faith questions we're wrestling with, but guided by the Holy Spirit to speak of the story. The Bible is written in 66 books, over 40 authors, over 1,500 years Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, prophets who sound very different. John, writing the gospel of John. Mark, writing the gospel of Mark, who sound very different and focus on different parts of Jesus' personality and story because they are different people writing from different perspectives. And if you are an engineer or a programmer, it is not a bug, it is a feature. It's not a problem with Scripture that the voices are different. It is an intentional part of Scripture to see the breadth and beauty of who God is, that Jesus Christ and that his life was so significant that God didn't want us to have just one story and one perspective on it. He wanted four stories from four different people in order to tell us the breadth and the beauty of who Jesus was and is. 
Each author tells a part of the story in their way for their days that we get to read. Or as Gordon Fee, a fantastic biblical scholar who actually passed away this last year, wrote, the Bible, it has been correctly said, is the word of God given in human words in history. The Bible is God's inspired word told through humans in times and places. But the Bible is also authoritative. The Bible is true. The Bible is inspired. The Bible is authoritative, guiding us in God's story and plan for our life. And all of this because at the center of the Bible is the story where it leads to Jesus. Our final part, the Bible leads to Jesus. This is the point. This is the direction. This is the intent of Scripture. As the author of Hebrews says, Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. That all of scripture is a story that leads to the culmination of Jesus. I've told this story many times. It's one of my favorite stories that as a young pastor, I had a meeting with a new Christian who had gotten saved and came into the church and they asked to have a meeting with me in a Barnes and Noble on Route 1 and we sat down and normally when a church member says they want to have a meeting, I have no idea what it's about. I have often now, I don't allow people to schedule mysterious meetings with me. I said, you have to tell me because too many times people have been really mean to me in a meeting I wasn't ready for, but I want to be able to prepare for this meeting. And so they, this mysterious meeting, I had no idea. I sat down and they said, I'm reading my Bible. I'm almost all the way through the Old Testament and I need you to tell me who the good guys and who the bad guys are. I don't know. I can't tell. I thought someone was a good guy, and then they seemed like a bad guy. I thought someone was a bad guy, and then they did something good. I don't know who's good and who's bad in the story. And I think that is a very reasonable interpretation of reading the Old Testament. Who's good? Who's bad? Abraham seems to be the good person. He does some bad stuff. Jacob seems really bad, but is a good guy. I don't know how I'm reading this. But the truth of reading Scripture is... It is not good guy and bad guy. It is fallen humanity and a God who is working in grace. So we don't look for good guy and bad guy. We look for where do we see humans' brokenness and where do we see God's grace? We see a broken human in Abraham. We see a gracious God who calls him with a purpose and a plan. We see a broken person in David who God's grace calls and restores through his own sin and brokenness. We see a humanity who is broken in need of grace that is discovered through Christ Jesus alone. Jesus opens the scriptures to us and shows us that all of the Bible is about him, is leading to him, is yearning for him, is desiring him. That the Bible comes to life when it is read through the context of a story leading to the most powerful, wise, generous, joyous, gracious, loving person who has ever lived, God put on flesh in Christ Jesus. Which means that the point of reading scripture is not to have correct theology, but to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. 
And if your theology is not moving you to love Jesus more and love his people more, your theology is not correct. And that God doesn't care if you can make all the connections of the Old Testament into the New Testament and point out the linear connections and where they fulfill each other if it is not making you a more loving person or enamoring you with the person and presence of Jesus. The purpose of the Bible is to engage with the living presence of Jesus who was, who is, who will be to come. And to study the story is to study the story of the most wonderful and perfect and loving being who ever has been in Christ Jesus. We can discover Jesus through Scripture by literally reading his words, what he said and what he did. We can read the Bible to discover the character of God as revealed in Jesus. And this is where the Bible becomes formational. This is where the study of Scripture becomes transformational in us. We are what we read. We are what we consume in media, in life. The more I listen to songs, the more those are what I want to talk about. The more TikTok videos I watch, the more my mind becomes fractured and fast and focused on cooking. And if I've talked to you and described to you a cooking tip in the last month, it's because of TikTok and I've been imbuing it into my mind. I watch Scrubs and I all of a sudden want to be talking about it and I'm acting more goofy. And we internalize the story, we become more like the story. And you may say, well, it's just entertainment. It is impacting you in ways you don't realize or understand. And this is why God has written and protected and preserved for 2,000 years the collection of the story that reads to Jesus. And it's why he has called us to meditate on it day and night. Because the story transforms us to live into the story of who God was and is and will be. The stories we consume form us. They shape us. The scripture is a story that leads us to the presence of our perfect King and Savior, Christ Jesus. And the more we sit in it, the more we study it, the more we chew on it, the more we argue with each other about it, the more it transforms us to be like the person at the center of the story, Jesus. My challenge to you is to practice in this new year a regular consumption of the Bible. I use consumption because I want it to be wider than just sitting and reading. That you're reading it, that you're listening to it, that you're discussing it with other people. But that it begins with a commitment to read through Scripture ourselves. That you can do this. We have more access to scripture than any people who have ever lived in the history of humanity. I have it in my pocket. I have it on my computer. I have it in book form. I have it in audio form. I can read scripture anywhere and everywhere. So three action steps. If you've been taking any notes, these are the three we want you to do on your way out of here today. The first, have a plan to read the story of the Bible. Have a plan. I don't care exactly what your plan is. It could be a year through the Bible. We as a church offer you three different, you know, encouragements of what we think are great plans. There are tons of plans out there that are fantastic. If you download the Bible app or even if you go to literallybible.com, 
You can see hundreds of plans. We have three that we love and have personally walked through. I love the Bible Project. I love their year through the Bible. I'm doing it again this year for the third time, walking through the Bible while I also can see videos that are teaching me the theology and what's going on beyond it. You can sign up with friends and read through it together. I did that this year with some of my close other minister friends. We're reading and holding each other accountable. Read through the Bible. You can make a plan for one month, and I'm just going to tackle these New Testament letters, or you can make a plan for a year. But make a plan. Make it happen. Commit to it. Tell others about it. Hold yourself accountable. Second, take time to meditate on passages. Don't just plow through it, check it off. I think reading through the Bible as a whole is crucial. It's engaging with the story. I also think sometimes we can miss the beauty of Scripture by only seeing the whole story. Individual pieces that speak to us their beauty, their individual nature. My favorite chapter in all of Scripture is John chapter 21. I've meditated on that chapter I don't know, I can't even keep track how many times of sitting and reading about Jesus having breakfast with his friends. Meditate and sit on a passage. And third, invite the Spirit into your study of the Bible. It has made the world of difference, maybe the most significant aspect of transformation in my Bible reading 20 years ago was when I began to, when I would open Scripture, start with Holy Spirit, Speak to me through your word today. Draw your word out to me. Speak to my mind and my heart as I read this and guide me in the process. That's it. Make a plan. Meditate on the word. Invite the Holy Spirit into your study of scripture. On your way out today, we're gonna have resources for you to walk through this together. You go to our website or follow the QR code, you can find our resources on the website under our resources page. Dive in and begin to feed yourself in the study of Scripture. I want to close with this encouragement. When you read the Old Testament, you might begin with your reading of Scripture by saying, I'm reading from Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes people say that's not necessarily the best way to read it because you have a long slog in the beginning and you can get discouraged somewhere around Leviticus or Numbers. But as you're reading, you'll get to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy will feel like a reminder of what you've already read. A lot of Deuteronomy is just repeating what happened in Genesis and what happened in Exodus. And you're like, I already read this story. And the book of Deuteronomy begins with, in the middle of and at the end, is a letter from Moses on the plains of Moab, they call it, right before the Israelites are to move into the promised land. And Moses is reminding them of the story of what brought them here. He's reminding them of who they are based on the story of how God has saved them, cared for them, and given them a promised future. And what he says to them over and over again in this letter is, you're going to move into a really easy life. It's going to be blessings. You're going to have a lot of food and children and a lot of fun. And what's going to happen in that, you're going to be so distracted that you are going to forget who you are. You're going to forget the story of what's made you who you are. He says, don't forget. 
He begs them. He pleads with them. He uses in Deuteronomy 6 even the language of tattoo the story under your head and onto your arm. Write it everywhere because you're going to forget who you are. My encouragement, church, community, Pennington AG, let us not forget who we are, who we've been brought together by, what our story is. There are a million things in this world and in this life that can fracture us. There is one resource that God has given to unite us. It is the story of who we are, that we are made on purpose in a whole world, in a whole creation. But we are also people with a tendency to be broken and make it about ourselves, to hurt and to destroy. And that in our hurt, we ruin more of this world, but for the saving grace of Christ Jesus that has come into this world, that Jesus has shown us how to love and to sacrificially give his life for our brokenness and sin. And that through his resurrection, we have the promise and the provision of one day this whole world being rid of the brokenness we live in. That that's our story. That we're people made on purpose that we are people humbled under the loving grace of Christ Jesus and that we are people with a hope and a promise of eternity and justice and healing by Christ Jesus himself. Amen? We remind ourselves of this story through the study of his scripture. Allow me to pray over you this morning. Do you bow your heads with me? If you're gathered with us today, if you're in the room today, and you can't confidently say that you're a follower of Jesus. If this story, you would say, you're not sure it's your story. I want to let you know that in one moment, you can make it your story. You can take a step into that story by saying yes to Jesus. By accepting his love and grace. And you could take that first step by walking this prayer along with all of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, use this as a moment to recommit. Pray with me. Jesus, I want to know you as Lord and Savior and friend. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the culmination of the story of all humanity. You are God stepped into this earth. You lived a perfect and righteous life. You healed and you loved and you cared. And that without sin and brokenness, you took on my sin and brokenness, our sin and brokenness. And you died in our place on a sinner's cross. You were buried in the ground. You died where we should die. And that on the third day, you conquered death, resurrected to new life again. And that through your resurrection, I, we may be able to have eternal life. Jesus, you gave your life for us. Today, I make a commitment to give my life to follow you. Will you be my savior and friend? In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. As we close this morning, I wanna give you an opportunity to just pray into this story. What I'd love for you to do is to walk out of this place today with a plan for entering into that story, with a renewed excitement to study the scriptures God has given us to study the story of Christ Jesus.
As the worship team leads, I'll encourage you to be praying through that story God has called you to. to as the disciples on the road to Emmaus say, our hearts were burning within us. Pray that your heart would burn for the story of God's plan for us in Christ Jesus. The altar space is open. If you want to take a step forward as a physical response to say, God, I want to be a part of your story. I want my heart to be ignited by your story for us. We will have our elders on our left and our right. If you want them to pray over you, they will be here to lay hands on you and to pray and guide you. If you stand with me as the worship team leads us in song and we respond in prayer this morning.